0: Studied the form of comics into it.
1: What you need is a hobby. With words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't
0: know,
2: it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know?
1: We
3: have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category.
0: I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on
1: history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something.
0: People do not masturbate in the DC universe.
2: That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but every eighth episode of this show, I put everything on pause so that I can talk about one show in particular, and that show is Smallville. But, back in the old days, I'd talk about Star Wars comics every eighth episode. You see, what I do is, I have six episodes where I talk about anything I want. The seventh episode, at least at the time that I started this podcast, was for me and Chris Honeywell to talk about the DC Paradox Press line of big books. You know, things like the Big Book of Conspiracies, Big Book of Urban Legends, so on and so forth. And then the eighth episode would be all about Star Wars, but that had to change. And that's partly because my Star Wars shows might have been a little too similar to what the two true freaks do with their monthly Star Wars show. Or at least, too close for comfort. Makes sense? So I abandoned Star Wars as a fixture of my show and I replaced it with. Smallville. And if you haven't figured this all out yet, after a thousand friggin' times of me telling this story, I don't really know what to say. But anyway. So, I use every eighth episode of my show now to analyze Smallville from start to finish. And as it happens, right now, I'm finishing up my analysis of Smallville's dreaded fourth season. Now, I've talked about what makes this season so dreaded in previous episodes, so check those out if you're so inclined, but guys, the pain of The Dreaded Season 4 was real, literally. The only comfort I had for a good bulk of this Dreaded Season came from Veronica Mars, which was just getting started at the time that The Dreaded Season 4 was underway. The way I looked at it, Veronica Mars could maybe, kinda, sorta, in a way, be the untold adventures of Pete and Chloe from the first three seasons of Smallville. The names were changed because, hey, we've got copyright laws, but I gotta tell you, I just, I like the idea of Chloe being an amateur private eye and having Pete as her sidekick. No, it's not exactly a perfect match. But guys, I wanted anything that would redeem Smallville for me by that point. And, in short order, Veronica Mars as a TV show stopped being an alternate universe of Smallville and then kind of became a show of its own. At least for me. Now, I realize I'm supposed to be talking about Smallville here rather than Veronica Mars, but I can't help it. The pain, like I say, of the dreaded season four went pretty fucking deep, y'all. And Veronica Mars was just about the only good show that I could find by that point. And it's kind of funny, too, when you think about it, because I've got otherwise positive... ...or at least nostalgic... ...memories of this general time frame, you know? That era when the dreaded fourth season was coming out. I had my own dump of a townhouse, for one thing. No roommates, no family... No, nothing. That dump of a townhouse might have been a dump, but by God, it was my dump. No sharing. (sighs) Anyway, to get back to Smallville though, the dreaded fourth season is a necessary transition from Smallville Phase One into Smallville Phase Two. And I guess you could say that Smallville Phase One consists of the first three seasons of the show, and then Smallville Phase 2, which also, as I say, begins with the dreaded fourth season and then concludes with the sainted seventh season. You can't go, and this is the point, you can't go straight from the mighty season three into the fifth season. The dreaded fourth season has to be there to fill in the spaces. Now, I've gone to pains, guys, to emphasize that not Everything that happened this dreaded season was Goff and Miller's fault. As a matter of fact, in several cases, they were just trying to make the best of a bad situation. Luck was rarely on their side this dreaded season. So, my point is, I really have tried to be even-handed here. Now, I've been criticized for being too much of a Smallville fanboy. Some people have said that I'm blind to the show's flaws, but I've noticed that people haven't said that lately, and I can't help thinking that's because I've given the dreaded fourth season both barrels. And guys, the episodes we're talking about this time around aren't exactly a major improvement over what's come before. I mean, there are more bright spots going on here, sure, And even the bad spots aren't as bad as some of the other shit from this dreaded season, but no matter how you care to slice it, the dreaded season four is the year when Smallville sucked. That's the bad news. But the good news is there's not much more to deal with, and then we'll be finished with the dreaded fourth season after this episode, and then we can move on to bigger and better things that are better and bigger than the dreaded fourth season course before we get into that there's a payoff that you guys are all due way back in one of the previous dreaded season four retrospectives while talking about bound i said that we'd have to discuss a pretty fucking nasty sexual impulse that gets implied about certain smallville characters during the dreaded fourth season This episode, the one that you're listening to right now, is where I have to make good on that threat. So, something to look forward to, I guess. Anyway, so that's where we are at the moment. Now, last time I finished up my comments with episode 16, Lucy. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. Be right back to resume the discussion about the dreaded fourth season of Smallville beginning with episode 17, Onyx, after these messages...
0: Introducing the all-new line of Magnus Mobile bumper stickers. Show off your more thoughtful side with these brain-teasing bumper stickers. Such classics as, Have you hugged your snot-nosed Ritalin junkie today? Honk frantically if you're a violent sociopath. I'm the proud parent of a blue-blooded legacy child with mediocre grades. If this van's a-rockin', I'm probably deflowering your teenager. My other car also compensates for an unattractive wife. Honk if you're trapped in a loveless marriage. All of these and hundreds more are available for a limited time only. Magnus Mobile Bumper Stickers. Buy some. Hi, this is Erica Durantz. You're listening to Magnus Talk About Smallville.
2: I'm back now, and finishing off my look back at the dreaded fourth season of Smallville. Woohoo! Yeah, it's been a bumpy ride up to now. Anything but pleasant. But, to tell you the truth, the dreaded season four's pretty much bottomed out by now. This last batch of shows that we have to talk about this time around aren't too bad at all. Some are better than others, to be sure, there are some serious ups and downs here, but by and large, the worst this dreaded season has to throw at us, it's mostly in the rearview mirror now. And it only gets better from here because next time we'll be talking about the fifth season. I mean, how awesome is that? Seriously, how awesome is that? And some big stuff happens in season five, and most of it's a lot more interesting than anything from this dreaded fucking season, but before we can talk about any of that stuff, we've got to get the remnants of this horrible season over with first. Excuse me while I open up my Coke here. Anyway, we've got to get this season over with first, and on that note, episode 17, Onyx. Lex has been split in two. One half is good, the other is very evil. Some serious shit goes down in this character out of character story.
1: I want you to remember this day, Clark. I want you to remember that despite all your amazing powers,
3: there was one man that beat you.
2: I am the villain of the story. Damn, so much of this fits into the deeper themes and implications. I mean, for starters, we haven't gotten a Lex-centric episode in quite a while. Or at least, not a good one, because Bound was a lump of shit. Usually, when Lex speaks in other episodes, he uses a calm, measured tone of voice. Michael Corleone could take lessons from from Lex on how to keep your cool. What this episode, that is to say Onyx, what this episode suggests, though, is that evil Lex is a bit more sarcastic and out of control. He almost sounds drunk, in fact. When Lex makes use of his icy cool demeanor, that's his good side. The more manic version of Lex... Yeah, that's the evil side. In fact, this is as good a time as any to talk about Michael Rosenbaum's performance this time out. I mean, he's always good. I can fairly well say that I can't remember a single time when he wasn't on. But Onyx is something else entirely. Evil Lex and Good Lex have one thing in common. They both wear their hearts and true agendas on their sleeve. Rosenbaum gives each of them different mannerisms and vocal deliveries, and so because of that, it's really not hard to distinguish one from the other. But they're both very different from the regular Lex. The regular Lex is reserved and withdrawn. He's fairly quiet. But good Lex and evil Lex are both pretty chatty. They just verbalize things differently. This really is a tour de force performance, and I don't know, it, it seems trite to say that Rosenbaum should have won an Emmy, because everybody says that about somebody, but damn it, it's justified in this case. Anyway, speaking of evil sides, Lex, Lex makes reference to his evil side a lot in this TV show, Smallville in general, and especially to Clark. Onyx then, gives us a literal representation of Lex's dark side. The part that he's so afraid of. And the real shit of it is, he's right to be afraid. Oh, something else. Just before the kryptonite explosion takes place, Lex makes a special effort to throw the lab technician out of harm's way. In the process, he sacrifices his one chance to take cover himself which I find very interesting. The centerpiece of this episode, though, is obviously how the other characters react to the totally uninhibited evil Lex. How evil Lex treats the other characters, and in a weird, fucked-up, only-in-Smallville type of way, how Lex treats himself. The good version and the bad version. Another nice touch, and this is apropos of nothing, really, except good continuity that Smallville hardly ever gets credit for. Chloe and Clark talk about Dr. Sinclair's death at the torch, and they bump into the conflict in the timeline. Clark says that he and Lex went straight to the lab at about the, at about the same time that Chloe ran into Lex coming out of Dr. Sinclair's hospital room. Clark says that's impossible, but Chloe... Ever the free thinker says in Smallville, you of all people should know that you know because of all the weird stuff you've seen. And she's absolutely right. Back in season 1, they probably need half an episode to suss out that Lex had been split in two. Here, they start putting the pieces together almost right away. Partly it's because the plot needs them to because Let's face it, there's other shit that Onyx has to accomplish. But at the same time, it fits the universe right now because they've both seen so many fucked up things that somebody getting split in two isn't all that unusual anymore. I mean, shit, by this point in Smallville, that's Thursday. Speaking of Chloe... One weakness I have to admit about Smallville is that there are circumstances where nobody calls the cops in situations when they probably should. Or maybe they don't go to the hospital when that would probably be the best idea. It's rare, and it's usually for plot convenience, but it still happens once in a while. But here, Chloe skips out on a hospital visit and has a damn good reason for doing it evil Lex murdered Dr. Sinclair in the hospital. She'd be a sitting duck there, and she knows it. It's logical for her, then, to not want to go to the hospital, especially since she's really not all that badly injured to begin with. Chloe then makes a kinda poignant statement. Clark, I can live with a couple of bruises, considering the alternative. You're always there when I
1: need you, Clark. Clark. I just hope someday I can do the same for you.
2: Now, moving on to other stuff, evil Lex flirts with and makes a pass at Lana Lang. And people, that's not nothing. Jinx mounted the same gun on the wall, and this is a reminder of it. This is going somewhere. Maybe you'll like it, maybe you won't, but it's not arbitrary drama. It's going somewhere. Just not for a really long fucking time and speaking of Lana Lex what are you doing? what I've always wanted
3: well I do like them feisty
0: get out of my apartment
3: if that's how you want to play it oh by the way I'm closing the talent What? You can't do that.
2: Hmm, I think I can. You know, people want to say that Lex can't close the Talon. This is shitty continuity. This was patched up back in the Season 2 episode, Heat. Lex can't arbitrarily just close the Talon because he feels like it. What the fuck's the problem here? On and on and on. Well, you see, it's quite simple. Lex owns the Talon. After Heat from Season 2... Lana became a part owner of the Talon. However, and this is key, Lana sold her shares back to Lex at the end of The Mighty Season 3 to finance her trip to Paris. That means Lex is the sole owner of the Talon. That means he can do whatever the fuck he wants. Anyway, after that, Lionel interrupts the evil Lex's fencing lesson because... Evil X canceled the charity extravaganza that he'd been planning. Father and son duel. But not in an Empire Strikes Back kind of way. Or even Return of the Jedi, for that matter. Nope. It's the opposite of those father-son duels. This is another instance of the dreaded Season 4 calling back to events in Season 1. And once again... It's Hothead that inspires this part of the episode. Once again, Lex and Lionel are fencing over their differences. Unlike last time, though, Lex is the one who instigates the duel. Basically, evil Lex uses the duel as a way to bring Lionel back to the dark side. And it works. Lionel gives up the charity thing. Lionel was on a good path and the darkest part of Lex dragged him off it. I mentioned Star Wars a while ago, but it really is fitting. This duel isn't about winning or losing. It's Lionel and Lex battling over principle. Lionel winning means Lionel loses because he has to want to defeat his son. That is the trap, and Lionel walks right into it. Say whatever you want about Luke Skywalker. At least he knew when to toss his lightsaber aside. Anyway, something else. This is where Lex's slide into the dark side truly begins. At least in my opinion. Up to now, Lex has always had ulterior motives for everything he's done, but his ultimate agenda was usually pretty benevolent. Yeah, there may have been selfish aspects to what he's done. For example, he was, maybe he was seeking profits, so he developed a process that could make fruit and vegetables grow in pretty much any kind of soil, the patent from which would, of course, be worth billions. Lex, to use another example, wanted Clark to get laid, so he bought Lana a coffee shop on and on and on. That cuts two ways. Every nasty thing that Lex has ever done has always had a bright side to it. But that all ends here. From here on out, Lex is a different person. I don't want to spoil what's coming in Season 5, but suffice it to say that we'll see less and less and less of Lex's kindler, gentler side as we move along through the series. Lex's friendship with Clark is already frayed. Now sure, they've mended things a little bit, but they're not the best buds they used to be. But that isn't the direct cause of Lex's slide into evil. We see it here. Lionel thanks Lex for bringing him back to reality and putting him back on the more devious path. When Lionel turns and walks out, Lex smiles. He probably would have been horrified at that at the beginning of Onyx, but not this time. No, this time he's gleeful about it. Anyway, this is a pretty self-contained episode, and that's the good part about it. You could watch this episode without needing to know too much of anything about witches or the Teague family or mystical stones of knowledge or really too much of anything else. But that's also what makes it more disposable, because it advances nothing with the season arc. It touches on the series arc a fair amount, but in terms of relevant shit for this season, yeah, not really. Keep that in mind for when I do my wrap-up for the dreaded season four later on in this episode. But for now, we're moving on to episode 18, Spirit.
0: So you think that her spirit was somehow able to take over Martha and then transfer into me? Well, we are in Smallville. And
1: I mean, what would the senior prom be without a body snatching prom queen?
2: It's prom season. Dawn Stiles is determined to be the prom queen, even though she's fucking comatose after a car wreck, so with an assist from Kryptonite, she settles for possessing whoever ends up winning the crown, which just so happens to be Chloe Sullivan. This is one of those times when I have to call bullshit on a Smallville episode's premise. And yes, that's what Chloe being elected prom queen is. The entire episode turns on that. Everything else is a means to an end. Now, usually I'm content to let Smallville the burgeoning science fantasy show that it is, tell its story. That sometimes means letting shit slide when Goff, Miller, and the writers play a little fast and loose with some things. But as Alfred Hitchcock once famously said, you can make your audience believe the impossible, but not the improbable. In this case, there is no bizarro world out there where I could ever believe Chloe Sullivan becomes a prom queen. These things are democratically decided. The student body chooses. And I'm sorry, but there's just no way Chloe could ever hope to win. I can accept the fact that she runs the torch as her personal tabloid. As I've said before, that'd never fucking happen in real life. But so much of Smallville requires that we believe that Chloe's had absolute free reign with the torch ever since she was a freshman in high school that you kind of have to accept it in spite of how in-fucking-possible it is. Fine. I'm willing to do that. It's a hell of a lot to ask for, but I can do it but what I'm not willing to do is believe that the very same stories that Chloe's run in and in every other episode of the show are suddenly forgotten about in time for spirit. Sorry, but I flat out fucking refuse to disregard what she's done with the torch. It's hard enough to believe that she could do it at all, but the writers have no right to ask me to put that shit aside just so they can tell this wacky story about the wacky ghost of wacky Don Styles possessing Chloe when she's elected queen of the prom. And no, I'm not saying that because I'm kind of fed up with ghosts possessing people on this show this season, but yeah, I guess there's that to consider too. Look, Chloe dragged a gay football player out of the closet back in torch from the mighty or sorry, truth from the mighty season three. In that same episode, she exposed a student for cheating on tests and, oh yeah, a teacher as a murderer. She's printed an uncountable number of negative op-eds about the evils of high school football and jock douchebags. I mean, who hasn't Chloe pissed off yet? But now... For temporary plot convenience? I'm supposed to believe that the entire fucking student body is willing to put all that aside to elect Chloe as the prom queen? Right after she published an op-ed where she criticized the practice of prom royalty? Fuck that. No. I don't buy it. Look, if Chloe feels that strongly about it, why not take her name out of the running? Well, I know why. If she did that, there'd be no story here. Plus, it's ironic, in quote marks, that the person who badmouths prom royalty becomes prom queen. No, it's fucking retarded. That's what it is. Now, several Smallville writers and producers have said that character-out-of-character episodes like this one are done mostly because they're cheap. And I have to say, there's a parenthetical not always to that. I Doubt Spell was a low-budget episode, but then it was also a season arc-oriented episode, so whatever, but the point is that these types of stories are done because they're usually fairly cheap and easy to do. Plus, it lets the cast do other things besides the same old shit each week. They can run around acting wild and crazy for an episode, and it's just plain fun. And you know what? I'm on board with all of that. You have to find ways to keep shit fresh every time or, or else you burn out way too soon. All I ask here is that the premise of the thing hold up to some kind of logical fucking scrutiny. And nothing about Chloe becoming the prom queen does. The one saving grace here is that at least Lana didn't win, so thank God for small favors, I guess. But, yeah, anyway. Still, I'll say this for Chloe, the prom queen. It was a chance for Clark to play the part of the astute observer of the human condition. He views Chloe as the rallying point for a bit of last-minute rebellion by people who are stuck in all kinds of inescapable stereotypes. Why, anything's possible with Chloe Queen. Huh. Chloe Queen... That's got a nice ring to it, but I doubt we'll ever hear that again. Yeah. But whatever. point is that this was a pretty intellectual observation coming from Clark. I'm used to seeing him fight smart, but it's nice once in a while for him to take a kind of writer's point of view as a cultural observer. It's just It's a brief moment, but it works for me. Anyway, other stuff. Lana, Lana originally decides not to go to prom because she'd necessarily need to go with Jason. And showing up with a disgraced ex-school employee who got fired for dating a student is probably bad form. Gee, kind of makes you think you shouldn't have done it. What do you think, uh, writing staff? Ugh. But aside from that... I have to say, though, her logic is sound. Obviously, she doesn't close the loop on that by questioning her relationship with that son of a bitch to begin with, but it'll be a long time before Lana starts behaving in logical, sympathetic ways across the board, so for now, we'll just have to take what we can get. Something else. Bridget Crosby turns up dead in spirit. As I've said before... Margot Kidder shit-talked Al Goff and Miles Miller to the international media for how they handled Christopher Reeve's passing on the show. And, as I've said before, very frankly, I'm not sure just what the fuck they were supposed to do. They aired a silent tribute to Reeve during one episode, and after that, they really had no choice except to kill his character off. Because there's really no way to replace Reeve in that role. I mean, The fuck else could they have done? Well, whatever it was, it apparently wasn't good enough for Kidder because she vowed to never come back to the show. I'm sure she's really busy these days, though. Margot Kidder stars in The Forest, crawling soon through a woodpile near you. Fucking psycho. But anyway, so this is where Goff and Miller had no choice but to kill off Bridget Crosby since. As with Reeve, there was really no way to replace Kidder. Speaking of which, there's some good continuity going when Jason digs through Lex's email. A neat little callback to Onyx comes when we see emails from Dr. Sinclair talking about the seeds that he and Lex had been experimenting with. There are other emails in there, too. One was sent by somebody called Kalina Kiff. Well. That sounds like a fictional name as ever I've heard one, but just for shits and grins, I googled it. Come to find out, Kalina Kiff played a warehouse worker back in Lucy. The episode Lucy. Which is apropos of nothing, you understand. It's just that I spent the time searching for it, so damn it, I wanted to mention it here. There are a few other things in there from Lionel. One says, We are Luthers. What's inside us never leaves. Another one says, The fundraiser. What's coming over you, son? This tells us that as, in, as intelligent and well-spoken as Lionel may be, he pretty much sucks at grammar and correct word usage. There are also emails in there from Brid- uh, Bridget Crosby where she and Lex confirm that they're supposed to meet. Anyway, so of course Lex interrupts Jason's invasion of his privacy, and soon they're talking about Bridget Crosby. Jason accuses Lex of murder and calls the sheriff about it. And wouldn't you know, Lex has to drink scotch just to get through the scene. I'm telling you, there's some, there's some really subtextual shit going on there. Lex is as sick of this stuff as we are, I swear. But anyway. Turns out this was all a trick by Genevieve and Jason. They murdered Bridget, and Lex was kind enough to dispose of the body for them. Oh, and now the Teagues have the crystal of water, which they stole from Bridget. So, let's recap, because it's easy to lose track with all this shit. Clark found the crystal of fire and hid it in the Kwachi Caves back in Crusade, so that one's safe and sound. Bridget Crosby collected the crystal of water from Edgar back in transference. She was murdered by Jason and Genevieve before the beginning of spell, and they steal the crystal of water from her. Jason stole the crystal of air out of the temple in Shanghai while Clark and Lana were unconscious after their fight in Sacred. But the crystal of air gets stolen from Lana's apartment. Jason immediately suspects Clark... Lionel, or Lex, but it turns out that Lana faked the robbery so uh, she could send Jason off on a wild goose chase while she keeps the stone for herself. So there you go. All stones of knowledge are accounted for. God help me, but Spirit has a few deeper themes and implications. Basically, Lois shoots down any chance of ever going to any kind of prom with Clark. Blink and you miss it, but Clark shoots her a look that says that kind of hurt his feelings. Now, look, I'm not trying to get all shippy and stuff here. I just, I call him as I see him. Lois has ridiculed the idea of dating Clark before, and he didn't make faces like that, but this time he did. That's all I'm saying. Speaking of shippy stuff, though, Chloe and Clark call back to Tempest from season one when Clark had to abandon Chloe at the spring fling in order to go rescue Lana. It's just good continuity. That's all I'm saying. I like it. Some questionable continuity comes up, though, when Clark talks to Martha earlier in the show about watching people go to prom his freshman year. But unless that happened off-camera, there's a good chance somebody goofed on that because... The only time Clark saw anything like that was in the pilot when everybody was going to the homecoming dance and then later during the aforementioned spring fling from Tempest. Small potatoes, but there it is. And it seems most likely Clark was talking about homecoming from the pilot. That's just what I'm, what I'm interpreting here, but maybe I'm wrong. Again, this is the dreaded Season 4, touching upon issues and conflicts and subplots and moments from Season 1. And, for once, none of them have anything to do with Hothead. That is, unless you count Jonathan saving Clark's ass at the high school, which happened in both Hothead and Spirit, so, hmm. Speaking of Jonathan, though, he uses kryptonite to take Dawn down where, when she possessed Clark. Several issues there. First, Clark told Jonathan to get some kryptonite because he obviously figured there was a very good chance that Don would take possession of him. And there goes my phone. Just got a text message. Anyhow. First, Clark told Jonathan to get some kryptonite because he obviously figured there's a very good chance that... Don would take possession of him. He needed some kind of way to get rid of her for good, and the only way to do that was to sacrifice himself. It's a good moment. It shows that Clark had already taken, uh, taken stock of Don's powers and figured out how to win. It's also good, though, because Don possessing Clark pushes Chloe across the room, but unlike usual, She's not unconscious, so she watches Jonathan use Kryptonite to save Clark's ass. Chloe's seen Clark use super speed and super strength, but she had no idea about his vulnerability to Kryptonite. And once again, she keeps the secret. This will be important in the very next episode. As an aside in all this... You've got Lois and Clark standing on the side of the dance floor while other people are dancing to some, I don't know, romantic ballad or other. Clark invites Lois to dance, but then Lana comes along and fucks the whole thing up. And I'm not talking about spirit when I say that. See? Seeds are being sown even while seeds from other episodes are being reaped here. So I'll give spirit its due for that, but anyway... You've got Lana and Clark dancing together while Chloe looks on sadly and Jason watches with fire in his veins. Honestly, this might be the shippiest moment of the whole episode, but oddly enough, it also really rings the most true to character. Maybe it, and also it just rings the the most true to life because I freely admit it, This could very well be baggage that I've got from all the formals and dances and shit I went to back in high school, but I honestly can't remember a single time when some kind of drama didn't happen. Somebody loved somebody else who friend-zoned the fuck out of them ages ago, and there was no chance of ever making that work, and it's just teenage drama bullshit, and I don't know, it's just it's logical for this episode. I don't know why, but... It just makes sense. I'm not saying it's good. Just that it makes sense. Now, this next part, mm, that might be griping and complaining for no reason for some of you, but I've got to be honest. Remember Crisis from The Mighty Season 3? That episode starts with present-day Clark getting a call from future Lana... She gets shot to death by future Adam Knight, so Clark super-speeds to the Talon and finds present-day Lana and present-day Chloe giggling like schoolgirls, and really, nobody knows what the fuck's going on because nobody knows the call came from the future yet. Later on in Crisis, we see a kinda-sorta repeat of that sequence, except Clark manages to save the day. It completely turns the teaser on its head. It's a total reversal of what we saw originally. We never see the identity of Lana's killer because, honestly, that's less important than her death. I say all of that to say this. The teaser for Spirit is nothing like that. It shows Dawn, in possession of Chloe, beat the shit out of Jonathan Kent, and then she sets up the boiler room to explode. The teaser never gets a twist. I mean, yeah. We find out later that Dawn is in possession of Chloe's body, but unlike Crisis, this teaser isn't really revisited or, and, and modified. Basically, someone took a random two minutes of the episode, slapped that in place for the teaser to, u- you know, to use as out-of-context shock value, and then nothing. It doesn't get paid off. It doesn't get reversed. Nothing happens. Spirit's teaser is just cheap drama. This is akin to the revelation, quote unquote, from Crisis that Lana's killer was Adam. Well, that wasn't what the teaser was really all about. The identity of Lana's killer and Crisis's teaser is less important than the fact that she got killed. All keeping her attacker's identity secret in the teaser for Crisis managed was heightened tension that maybe, just maybe, the shooter isn't Adam, so the characters can't be absolutely sure of who to look for or what to protect Lana against. Anyway, I don't want to look. I don't want to get all you know all ranty about it. It's just I just wanted to mention this. That's all. All in all. If you ask me, spirit's a fucking dud. Blank. Episode 19. After emptying out the talent's cash register, a freak of the week zaps Clark's memory and leaves him with complete amnesia, so it's up to Chloe to help him out. So it must have been kind of strange to have a zombie best friend walking around.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I never really realized how complicated that zombie's life was.
0: Complicated. Did I do something unusual? You had a clean slate to start all over with, and you made all the same choices.
1: Except for one.
0: (laughs) Chloe, I I need you to be completely honest with me. Honest, huh? What'd I do? He trusted
2: me. I'm going to start with Jason and Lana, since that stuff is easy and brief. Lana's 50-50 on going to college. Jason says it's their chance to start over and maybe recreate Paris a little bit. Lana melodramatically tells them that too much bullshit has happened since Paris. They can't get that back. Jason gets pissed. Jerks Lana around a little bit because Lana has a thing about dating abusive assholes. Jason tells her he's protected her from a lot of bullshit, and then he storms out in anger. Now, this is another character out of character episode, and as I've said before, these are usually done because they're cheap. So if you get a character out of character episode, odds are good the production's trying to save money for a really expensive show coming later on. This is the second character-out-of-character episode that we've gotten in a row. So, do you think maybe something huge is coming? Deeper themes and implications. Obviously, Chloe's instrumental in this episode. Martha and Jonathan aren't around to help, so Chloe has to go it alone. She puts Clark on a leash when it comes to keeping his powers in the closet, though, and you gotta think that for the first time... She has a very intimate appreciation for what it must have been like for Jonathan and Martha to raise a child this special without ever giving anything away. Lex is Chloe's equal opposite here in Blank. Chloe tries to gain Clark's confidence and then slowly rebuild who he was before. Lex attempts to take advantage of Clark's handicap and learn all of his secrets. Blank really brings up a lot of nature versus nurture issues, just to move on to other issues. It ties in with my running thesis that Clark's inherent selflessness and heroism has been guided by Jonathan and Martha, but it didn't originate with them. It's who Clark is. Selfless and heroic. Martha and Jonathan never told Clark what to do. They simply told him how and how not to do it. That comes to the fore here when Clark eases right into the search for Kevin Grady. Before too long, the bigger issue becomes figuring out just what the hell happened with Kevin that he's on the run in the first place. To put it another way, Clark lets his own problems take a back seat to helping someone who desperately needs it. And it's a perfectly natural thing for him to do. He settles right into it with absolutely no effort. Where Clark has to be restrained is keeping his secret to himself. Nobody has to tell Clark to use his powers to help others. That much comes naturally to him, both in this TV show in general and specifically here in Blank. Instead... Clark needs to be shown all over again why it's vital that his secret stays secret. Victory doesn't just come from taking Kevin Grady down. Having Kevin arrested for petty theft isn't going to solve the problem. There needs to be restoration. Kevin needs to learn that his brother's death isn't his fault. And Clark helps him with that. Just of his own free will. Just off the top of his head. It's Clark's natural instinct. Anyway. Other stuff. At the moment Clark's memory gets zapped, we get a very quick montage of lots of previous episodes. You get glimpses of Chloe dressed as a cheerleader, Pete Ross smiling, and then you also see Virgil Swan from Rosetta. There's really tons of other shit in there uh, as well, but that's the stuff that I can remember off the top of my head, so you'll take it and like it. Anyway, something else uh, going on here uh, involves the similarities between Blank and the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Not stylistically, you understand, so much as thematically. Both of them ask the question of which is better. The painful truth or a blissful lie? Mind you, pain and bliss always are in the eye of uh, the beholder in both of those stories, but I guess that's probably too long to get into here. My point, though, is that I see a lot of similarities between a, uh, Eternal Sunshine and blank. Clark has to realize that however he, however however. Free he feels without a lifetime of burdensome and possibly agonizing memories, he made choices that shaped his life. He needs his life back. Kevin's victory comes from being exonerated, but Clark's victory is choosing to reclaim his old life. As with Eternal Sunshine, the conflicts in Blank aren't resolved by brute force, or, for that matter, even by selectively deleting life's painful memories. Fraud and deceit don't provide much comfort for liars and revisionists in either story. Not for very long, anyway. Resolution can only be reached when the characters accept the choices they've made and the circumstances they've faced in life. It's better to suffer under harsh truths than flourish under beautiful deception. Oh, by the way, Lana and Clark decide to give it another shot, so I guess Lana's done with abusive assholes. Episode 20, Ageless. Lana and Clark find a baby sitting in a smoking crater in the middle of a field. Gee, why would Clark possibly relate to that? Obviously, the issue here is forcing Clark and Lana into a very premature domesticated parenthood And, oddly enough, they both settle rather comfortably into it. So, hmm. In other news, Genevieve tries to extort the crystal of air from Lionel and threatens Lex's life to do it, which turns out to be the second biggest mistake she's made all year. I'll deal with her biggest mistake later on, though. Anyway, so threatening Lex's life and Lionel's presence is the second biggest mistake Genevieve's made all year because Lionel poisons Genevieve's wine and withholds the antidote from her until she hands over the crystal of water. So, turnabout's fair play, I guess. Oh, and Lionel gently reminds Genevieve that threatening any Luther's life in his presence is just a really bad fucking idea. He does this by threatening her life. So... Let's recap, because it's easy to lose track with all this shit. Clark found the crystal of fire and hid it in the Kwachi Caves back in Crusade, so that one's safe and sound. Bridget Crosby collected the crystal of water from Edgar back in Transference. She was murdered by Jason and Genevieve before the beginning of Spell, and they steal the crystal of water from her. In Ageless, Lionel forces Genevieve to fork it over, or he'd let her die from poisoning. So now the crystal of water is in Lionel's possession. Jason stole the crystal of air out of the temple in Shanghai, while Clark and Lana were unconscious after their fight in Sacred. But the crystal of air gets stolen from Lana's apartment. Jason immediately suspects Clark, Lionel, or Lex, but it turns out that Lana faked the robbery so that she could send Jason off on a wild goose chase while she keeps the crystal of air for herself. So there you go. All stones of knowledge... ...are accounted for. Other stuff. Clark tracks down Tanner, Evan's father. Evan needs a bone marrow transplant... ...if there's any hope of slowing down his rapid growth. Tanner tells Clark to go piss up a rope. Now, Clark has more than enough raw firepower... ...to smack Tanner upside the head... ...knock him out... ...superspeed him and Evan both somewhere with... ...shall we say, less strict laws about donation under duress... And then everyone can live happily ever after. But as with Kevin Grady from Blank, that's patching up a symptom. It's not actually solving a problem. Clark can't use brute force to reconcile Tanner to Evan. Another season one callback here. In the episode uh, Nicodemus from the first season, Clark and Lana climb to the top of a windmill just so... Uh, so that Lana can see the Metropolis skyline. Here, uh, here in A- uh, Ageless, Lana takes Evan there just before his big explosion. Another season one callback comes shortly thereafter, when Evan says he's glad Clark and Lana found him in the field. Clark replies that Evan found them. This is an almost verbatim repeat of dialogue from... Uh, that uh, Jonathan and Clark traded back in the pilot. Now, I'm really not sure if this next part should go into deeper themes or, or, and implications, but it's interesting that Ageless started with Tanner abandoning Karen when she gives birth to Evan, and in the end, Clark has to force Lana to run for her life while he stays with Evan until his death. There's a clear theme here of what parents are or aren't willing to do for their children. And this isn't necessarily uh, defined by blood. Jonathan and Martha are obvious examples of parents' love transcending biology. Tanner represents detached and unconcerned parenting. Even biological parenting. That leaves Lionel representing ruthless parenting. Lex and Lionel have definitely had their ups and downs, but Lionel's willing to do whatever it takes up to and including murder to protect Lex from Genevieve. Oddly enough, his fatherly love wasn't enough to spare Lex back in Covenant, the third season finale, when Lex experienced Lionel's wrath. Anyway, this next bit is trivia, but Evan's mother is fairly incidental to Ageless as an episode, and hell, incidental to the series as a whole. We never see Evan's mother again. We do see a bit more of this actress much later on down the line, though, so just keep an eye out for that. The parting shot for Ageless is finding out that Lex misled Clark when he said that Luther Corp. would release all their findings about Evans' unique biological structure to advance medical research by centuries. He gave the impression that it would be immediate. But what he says when asked about it by the project manager... ...is that they they are going to do it. Eventually. It's no spoiler to say that we never see that happen... ...for the rest of Smallville's run. Forever. Episode 21. Brendan Nash is having a hard time letting go... So he kidnaps a bunch of high school uh, students from Smallville High and imprisons them in a, in a replica of the school so that they can constantly live out their senior year. Forever and ever and ever and ever. You know, people have compared this episode to House of Wax and I just don't see it. My understanding is that in House of Wax, somebody was murdered And then covered in wax. But that was it. On top of that, House of Wax came out on May 6th, 2005. Forever was broadcast on May 11th of that same year. And so I just don't see how one could have influenced the other. They were, they just came out too close to one another. So I, I I guess my point is, I really wish people would stop comparing these two. Anyway, the central issue here is the struggle that goes along with finishing high school and starting real life. Brendan Nash simply can't do it, and so he finds the sickest, most bizarre way to hang on to the past. Deeper Themes and Implications This episode scratches the surface, but there's more to Clark's decision to stay on the farm than just loyalty to his farmer parents, who need him to do the work of 50 employees. It's implied when Martha asks if Clark's guilt over leaving them is the real reason he wants to stay. And you know what? For the sake of argument, that may very well be part of it. Sure. I'll buy it. But there's a deeper problem here. As I've said before, Clark's very well aware of the sweet deal that he's got with Jonathan and Martha as parents. He's been loved, guided, nurtured, cared for, and protected his whole life. Never once have Jonathan and Martha exploited Clark. And people, Clark's not an idiot. He knows that Tons of people out there would have used him for their own purposes a thousand times over by now. His problem is that he's so grateful and so fixated on the family life that he's got on the farm that he's unwilling to let it go. This could be the first time Clark's resisted moving forward in life when he should, based on nostalgia taken to the nth degree. Everything he's ever known and loved is in Smallville, and it's, it's perfectly okay for him to cherish that, but there comes a point when he needs to grow up and be his own man. Clark's fundamentally unwilling to do that right now, and that's the problem. He's not ready to move away from home. His heart's stuck in Smallville. And this isn't completely about Lana, either. Clark has no idea what her college plans are. This is about Clark's shortcomings. This is the first real indication we get that Clark isn't ready to get on with his life. It's not a matter of Clark sacrificing his dreams to help his dad run some piece of shit farm. Or, at least that's not all there is to it. This isn't about Clark's loyalty. It's about Clark's unwillingness to let go of the life that he's had up to now in order to face the challenges of tomorrow. Now, Moving away from that, we see Chloe stripping down the torch and dismantling the wall of weird. It's obviously an emotional thing for her, and it should be. Chloe's a little nervous about the future, too, but she's got a career path in mind, a proven talent for writing, and also journalism, and, whether it's believable or not, four years as the lead editor of The Torch. Clark and Lana are a lot more aimless right now. Clark quit football, and Lana's a cardboard cutout, so neither of them have much to do with their lives just yet. But they do have each other. And for whatever reason, that's always been enough through Smallville's run up to this point. So, the Teague family versus the Luther family. Jason and Genevieve kidnap the Luthers and torture them in order to reacquire the Crystal of Water and also find out where they can get the Crystal of Air. Lionel tipped his hand to Genevieve and Ageless. He made it very clear that he's willing to kill in order to protect Lex. So, would he give up either of the stones to save Lex's life? Apparently so, because he six Genevieve on Lana so that she can get the Crystal of Air from her. Now, on the surface you might wonder how the hell Lionel even knew that Lana even had the crystal of air. And I think we can read between the lines on this one. Lionel knew, he obviously knew, that he himself, he didn't have the crystal of air. The only person who could steal the crystal of air had to go to Shanghai back in sacred, so... That narrows the list down to Lex, Lana, Clark, and Jason. Obviously Genevieve and Jason don't have the Crystal of Air, or else they wouldn't be the, uh, demanding that the Luthers give it over to him. But Jason's made it clear that the Crystal of Air was in his possession at one point. The problem is that somebody stole it. Lionel probably figures that if Lex had the Crystal of Air he'd know by now. Lex would have let something slip at some point. But either way you look at it, Lionel would know by now. As for Clark, he couldn't have known Jason ever had the Crystal of Air in the first place. That leaves only one other person on the list who had access to Jason's property with the means, motive, and opportunity to steal the Crystal of Air. So... Lionel sells Lana out to save Lex from death or maiming. In the end, it comes down to a face-off between Lex and Jason, and there's an interesting exchange between the two of them. Lex, Lex, don't do this! Don't do this! Come on, look at me, look at me. You and I—we're not that different. It was never about you and me. It was
1: about our parents. Please, Lex, please. I always knew I had to protect Lana from you, but not as much as you've been protecting your best friend, huh, Clark? Clark doesn't have anything to do with this. Oh, you don't believe that. Clark's more connected to this than any of us. You just choose to ignore it. I mean, think about it. The symbols burned into the kid barn, the fields. It's a little late and obvious to be shifting the blame in the 11th hour. I can't just see what's right in front of your face, Lex? It's Clark. He's... I've something you didn't want me to know. Max, you saved my life back there. I was returning the favors. I had no choice. I know you have a stone.
2: If anything happens to Lana, you'll be begging for an end like that. I've got a theory here. For reasons I'll get into some other time, I think Jason and Genevieve had some idea about Clark's true origins. Maybe not everything, but they had the big picture. But before Jason could say too much, Lionel shot him. Understand, Lex's life wasn't in danger at that moment. Lex had the upper hand. Jason was stalling for time so that Lex wouldn't bash his brains out with that tree branch. But Lionel shot Jason anyway. Why? To silence him. Jason couldn't be allowed to spill the beans to Lex. What did Lionel kill Jason to protect, you might ask? Well, that's spoiler stuff. We'll have to read between the lines on a lot of stuff, but we can make some guesses. We're going to revisit this later on. And now for something completely different. Way back when I was talking about Bound, the ninth episode, I said, trying to think of a polite way to put it, Freud would have had a field day with Lex's choice of women and why he's interested in them. Basically, Lionel's noticed that most of the women that Lex has had the hots for over the years have been brunettes, Just like Lillian Luther, Lex's mom. Of course, the problem here is that Lillian wasn't a brunette. She was a redhead. Some strange discontinuity there, but there it is. Small potatoes, though. But anyway, the point stands. Basically, Lex has a pretty fucking twisted attraction to women who remind him of his mom. Oddly enough, though, this isn't the creepiest sexual impulse that is implied during this dreaded season. Normally I'd spoil it since I don't give a damn about spoiling stuff this dreaded season, but this little secret's worth waiting for. Put it that way. Besides, I only want to talk about it once. Because that's all I can stomach. Well, here we are. Lionel says...
1: Genevieve. And the dutiful son. The edible bond certainly has a way of uh, flourishing when it's fed, doesn't it, Lex?
2: He's talking about Genevieve and Jason. And Lex smiles back like he knows exactly what Lionel means. And then Genevieve backhands Lionel for his insolence. Now, if this was the only time something like this ever came up, you could dismiss it as Lionel talking shit, but this isn't the first time it's ever come up. This next bit comes from uh, the episode Lucy.
1: I think we both know there's nothing stronger than the love between
2: mother and son. And coming back to forever.
1: You know, with all your resources, I would have thought by now you'd know that Lana's nothing more than my mother's pawn. Pawn? Well, that's true, but a pawn you fell in love with? Must be killing you that you've sacrificed your feelings for Lana in exchange for some maternal warmth? It seems you can't do without.
2: Plus, all through this season, Genevieve's made a lot of ambiguous remarks about her relationship with her son. And some of them are a little suggestive.
1: Makes
2: us look like the Walden's, doesn't it? Now, I'm not the only one out there who's wondering about this. I happen to know that a lot of fans out there believe that Genevieve, at least at one point, had some kind of sick, weird, fucked up, incestuous relationship with Jason, her son. Now, I want to be clear about this. That shit is disgusting. It's wrong. It's perverted. It's every negative thing I can imagine. But, just hear me out here, okay? But, it makes sense for both Genevieve and Jason. Genevieve's maybe a little too protective of Jason. And protective of his heart. It's just inappropriate for a mother to attempt that much control over her son's, her grown-up son's love life. The other angle here is that Jason seems alternately a little creeped out by Genevieve, but at the same time, very... I don't know. Interested in, in her. It ebbs and flows. And I don't see this as contradictory writing or, or bad continuity or, or anything like that. I think there's a subplot here, but let's be honest, the sound clips I posted here are probably all anybody had the stomach to write. Obviously incest is sick and creepy and, dis- and just disgusting. Nobody's saying that it isn't. I'm only suggesting that it actually lines up really well with Genevieve and Jason. In their case, it actually makes a lot of fucking sense. Anyway, there's a lot more still to come, so for right now, I'm just gonna take a break and I'm gonna pick up my uh, dreaded season 4 retrospective right after these messages. so episode 22 commencement the big finale you know for a woman without a heart genevieve teague certainly did have a lot of blood we come to it at last the end of the dreaded season four thank god Lana as Isabel stabs Genevieve with the crystal of air and kills her, which not only purges Isabel from Lana's body, but also sets off a chain reaction that results in another meteor shower and some some other pretty horrifying shit. Unfortunately, it all happens during Clark's high school graduation ceremony. Now, pardon me while I get a sip off my coke here. Now, in the carnage that ensues, Unfortunately, we only see Clark make one rescue. It was some kid who was well on his way to winning a Darwin Award, but Clark bailed him out at the last minute. And you know, maybe there's no other way to do something like this within the context of Clark being an anonymous hero, but I kind of wish he could have pulled off a few more rescues. Big shit happens with Lionel, though. Clark placing the uh, the, uh, crystal of air uh, onto the altar in the caves sets off the crystal of water, which in turn sends Lionel into some kind of weird catatonic trance. Now, my policy for this season has been to not bother about protecting against spoilers. The issue here, though, is that the outcome of Lionel's trance isn't really apparent until season five and thereafter. And my policy about not protecting against spoilers relates only to spoilers for the dreaded fourth season. So because of that, and because Lionel's fate is waiting until the fifth season, I'm going to keep my mouth shut about that. For now, anyway. But believe you me, there's going to be a lot of shit to say when the time's right. Now, you can file this next thing under bullshit trivia, if you want, but there are 24 deaths in Commencement as an episode. You've got Genevieve Teague and then 23 other people in the ensuing uh, second meteor shower. That makes this the episode with the highest confirmed body count of the entire series. If you count the 15 confirmed deaths in Arrival, the season 5 premiere... That works out to 39 deaths within 24 hours of Smallville's internal timeline. As far as confirmed deaths are concerned, that's the highest number that Smallville would ever have. Now, true, higher numbers of people have probably died in other episodes, but we don't have exact numbers for any of them. So as far as official numbers are concerned, Commencement has more deaths in it than any other. Whatever that's worth to you. Anyway. Deeper themes and implications. We finally start getting some insight into Jarel here.
3: You're my father. Talk to me. Tell me what you've done. It was
1: you who brought this upon yourself, Carl.
3: What did I do?
1: I sent you here to unite the three elements.
3: The stones? They have nothing to do with
1: me! But they do, Colin. For the knowledge of the universe is meant for you only. Yet you chose to deny your heritage. Today, you will witness the consequences.
3: Then you send a meteor shower!
1: I have done nothing, Colin. Human blood has stained one of the elements and awakened a great danger from the darkness of space. What can I do to stop it? There is nothing you can do to prevent what is already in motion. But the meteor shower is just beginning, Father. I warned you that the elements could not fall into the hands of a human. The three must become one. It is the only way to save Earth from total annihilation.
3: I don't know where they are!
0: I don't have time to find them!
1: If you don't unite them at once, you, my son, will be seared by a fire from the sky. Even you can't survive. The future of mankind Please, help me,
2: it, Here's the thing. Jarrell knew something like this could happen. Because of that, he tried to take Clark off the farm back in Season 2 so that he could find the stones, unite them, build the fortress, and all that other stuff. Jarrell's message inside of Clark's ship said that he should rule the human race with strength. And I don't think Clark misinterpreted anything. That's truly what Jarrell wanted Clark to do. Why? The only way to explain that is to go into spoiler territory, but obviously I've not been too shy about doing that lately. So, to spoil just a little bit, we see a spaceship at the end of commencement. The passengers thereof are disciples of Zod, and they run around causing havoc all over Smallville. And, as bad as they are, they're just a taste of some pretty horrific shit that's still to come. Jarrell knew this threat was out there. He also knew they'd do whatever they could to bring Zod to Earth. Jarrell therefore expected Clark to take over the world, not to enslave everybody, but to prepare the human race to resist the disciples of Zod and, if necessary, Zod himself. Everything that Jarrell warned Clark about ends up coming to pass. Now, there's an argument that Jarrell should have been more upfront with Clark about what he was up against. But as we're going to deal with much later on, I don't think that was ever a possibility. He couldn't. Be more honest with Clark. But like I say, I'll get to that much later in the future. For right now, though, this puts Jarrell's deal with Jonathan from The Mighty Season 3 into some kind of better perspective. Jarrell knew that as long as Clark was on Red Kryptonite and living it up in Metropolis, there was no hope that he'd ever unite the stones. So, back in The Mighty Season 3, Jarrell cut that deal with Jonathan to give Jonathan powers so that he could br- uh, bring Clark back to Smallville with the proviso that Jonathan give Clark back to him later on. And from Jarrell's standpoint, I'd say that probably seemed like a perfectly fair deal. Shit, given, uh, given what we've seen from Jarrell so far, I'd say that's downright generous. But obviously Jonathan had other plans. Not that it matters in the end, though. In the end, Jarrell did forcibly recruit Clark into searching for the stones. Now, he had to threaten Jonathan's life and brainwash Clark in order to get him to do it, but he pulled it off in the end. For a while, anyway. What Jarrell never counted on was Martha using the black kryptonite to separate Clark from his Kal-El side. Without any other option, Jorel essentially begged Clark to search for the stones. And in the end, Clark decided not to, so Jorel pretty much had no choice but to basically wait for the crisis to come and then attempt to guide Clark through it as best he could. But obviously he can't resist throwing Clark a couple of I told you so's once the shit hits the fan. Now, you might ask why why couldn't Jorel have just been more direct and open about what was in store if Clark didn't do as he was told. Well, again, I don't want to get too spoilery here, but what, I, what I'll say for right now is that this version of Jarrell graduated from the tough-love school of parenting with probably with highest honors. He doesn't feel the need to explain himself. He gives orders, and he expects them to be followed. And in fairness to Jarrell, Had Clark just shut the fuck up and done what he was told, things would have gone a whole lot smoother. Now, yeah, sure, it probably wouldn't have ended with Clark becoming Superman. But then, that wasn't Jarrell's original plan, anyway. Clark could have left Smallville back in season two, assembled the stones, overthrown all the world's governments by force if necessary, And and begun preparing the human race for what happens after the second meteor shower. That was Jarell's original plan. But as I say, Jarell's plan got scotched early on. Clark disobeyed Jarell time and again. So the meteor shower and the aftermath of it—those things are all on Clark. He can't blame someone else for this. He owns it. Again. Not to get too spoilery, but you'll notice that Jarrell never behaves in such an adversarial way after the dreaded Season 4. True, he's distant, isolated, and usually a complete dick. But he won't be the villainous, would-be tyrant that he was in Seasons uh, 2, Mighty 3, and Dreaded 4 ever again. Now, this is all... Reading between the lines, but it's the only explanation I can think of that accounts for all of Jarrell's actions. Plus, his dialogue from a minute ago supports all this stuff. In fact, we are really reading between the lines now, but you could argue that Jarrell was impressed by how Clark handled not only the meteor shower and all that other stuff from seasons 5 and 6. Con- Considering that he did all or most of that on his own, and so because of that, Jarrell ultimately might devise a new plan. Instead of turning Clark into a benevolent dictator, he may decide on a very different future for his son. But that's all in the future, for us. In the here and now, in commencement, Jarrell basically tells Clark that he's a complete failure. And from Jarrell's perspective, he is. He's accomplished absolutely nothing that Jarrell has set up for him. Clark sees the error of his ways, too. No doubt about it. And now he needs someone to believe in him. And Jonathan Kent is the logical choice for that. Clark needs Jonathan to show faith in him and help him regain some of his lost confidence. And Jonathan doesn't disappoint.
0: He told me I have to find the other two stones right now and united with the one in the cave no you're my son you're not going to go on some kind of suicide mission
3: clark you might be stronger than steel but you're not invincible i know dad but i'm the only one who can do this
1: All the years that your mother and I spent raising you from a wide-eyed toddler running around on this farm to the man who is standing in front of me right now was for this moment.
3: You do this, son. You make us proud.
2: This again ties in with... uh one of the ongoing themes of this whole epi- uh, of this whole series, of pitting Jonathan against Jarell. This was done literally in a brief part of season two and a good chunk of season three. Since then, though, it's been, it's been more metaphorical. When Jarell tells Clark to zig, Jonathan says zag. When Jarell tells Clark that he's a failure. Jonathan's there to remind him that he's a success. When Jarrell tears Clark down, Jonathan's always there to build him back up. Now, further seasons would develop this idea a bit more, but we get a very good example of Jonathan and Jarrell working at cross purposes to one another when it comes to Clark right here in commencement. Now, moving on to other stuff. Clark and Lex have a scene together in the barn before the second meteor shower comes. Lex point-blank asks Clark if he knows anything about a secret chamber inside the Kawachi Cave. This is a trap. Back in blank, Clark told Lex about the secret chamber because he didn't know at the time that it was supposed to be a secret. Lex is baiting Clark here, giving Clark a chance to tell what he knows about the caves and whatever time they have left. Clark lies, and Lex knows Clark is lying. In the past, Lex has suspected that Clark's bent the truth, withheld facts, and maybe not always told the complete story, but I honestly can't think of a time when Lex knew, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that Clark had lied to him. This is the first time that I'm aware of. Apart from that, Way back in Scare, which is episode 10 from this dreaded season, several characters were forced to deal with their darkest fears. Clark's darkest fear was a second meteor shower. That puts most of Clark's actions and thoughts in this episode into another, deeper, context. What we're seeing here in Commencement is literally Clark's worst nightmare. Everything that happens... In this episode, is everything that Clark's always feared might come to pass. From the moment the coming meteor shower is announced until sundown in Arrival, which is the season 5 premiere, Clark's facing everything he hates and fears about himself. Now, I don't want to spoil anything, but Clark makes a decision at the end of Arrival that on the surface seems illogical. But as we'll talk about later, Clark had his reasons. Very good reasons, in fact. And we see reasons for that stuff right here in Commencement. Apart from that stuff, a minor quibble comes during the graduation ceremony when Lana is mysteriously absent, and whoever's doing the introduction calls her her, her name a few times. Now, this is a TV show. But beyond that, it's fast becoming a fantasy TV show. So, as I've said... We're starting to get into an era when Smallville can't and won't be beholden to real-world norms and practices. But still, at least at my graduation ceremony, the school covered its bases by giving essentially blank uh, diplomas to students to use as stage props. You'd have to go to the school a few days later to pick up your actual diploma. The reason for this is so the the graduation ceremony could go off easier. They took attendance of all students present at the ceremony just before it started, specifically to ensure that only the people who chose to attend would have their name called. But that necessitates giving away blank diplomas. Now, is this how every school out there operates? Maybe not. Probably not even. But... It's a logical way to handle the ceremony, specifically so there's no confusion or gaps with missing people. Doing things this way helped the ceremony move along smoothly. Because there were a lot of students who didn't want to attend the ceremony, or maybe couldn't attend for whatever reason. Take me, for example. I didn't even want to go to my graduation. The only reason I went was because my, my parents insisted on it, and my girlfriend at the time just kind of browbeat me about it. Left to my own devices, I wouldn't have even bothered. I mean, re- what's the point? I'll just have to go back to the damn school uh, a couple of days later to get the real diploma anyway, so why bullshit? The night originally scheduled for the ceremony was rained out. It was, su- it was supposed to take place at my school's uh, football stadium, but... I guess Mother Nature had a different agenda, so at the last minute, the ceremony got scotched. Before that happened, though, there was a lot of waiting around in the high school commons area while, while all the friends and families filled up the stadium. Or tried to, anyway. And what really blew my mind at the time was the total lack of bullshit among the students. People were talking to other people that they would usually never be caught dead talking to. There was an air of anticipation about the whole thing from um, from most people. I mean, shit, I even got propositioned by this one chick. I mean, she left no room for interpretation on that, let me tell you. She pretty well described all the stuff she wanted to do. And no, nothing happened because I had a girlfriend and I was still recovering from mono. And probably lots of other reasons, too. But anyway, like I said, the shit got rained out, and then it got rescheduled for the next night at a relatively nearby Lutheran church, during which we got the blank diploma and blah, blah, blah. Point is, though, they had the whole thing worked out so well ahead of time that only students who attended the ceremony had their name called. But like I say, this is a TV show. Lana's absence and the announcer guy calling out her name a few times builds drama and tension. That was the real purpose behind the moment, so it's really not worth picking the picking the thing apart. Another sip off my Coke here. Mm. Now, for trivia's sake... Goff and Miller have said that Commencement is the most expensive episode of Smallville there's ever been up to this point. And that's kind of easy to believe, actually. Commencement has shit-tons of extras, location shooting, visual effects, and other shit. I have no way to know what the budget for this episode was, but it looks like every penny of it is on screen in some way or another. Now, this is not only the most expensive episode of Smallville up to this point, it's also the longest episode of Smallville ever. The episode itself is 52 minutes and change. During the initial broadcast, it occupied a 90-minute time slot. So, my guess is that altogether, the total was 80 minutes, with the final 10 minutes occupied with a 10-minute preview of Batman Begins, which at the time was coming soon. I use speculative terms here because obviously I downloaded the episode because I couldn't watch it as a live TV broadcast. So, at first, the extended running time really didn't hit me. And to this day, I haven't seen the Batman Begins preview, but something tells me I'm just really not missing a whole lot there. Anyway... Apart from all that stuff, all the themes and implications, the subtleties of the acting, the huge effects and all that stuff, both when I first saw it and when I rewatched it now, I just really enjoyed this episode. It started off on an anonymous note of Clark dreaming of some impending doom, and that set the tone for everything that came next. No matter how bright and cheerful any scene in this episode was, it had a sort of tension underneath it that something big and horrible was coming. The best Smallville season finales always have that. Tempest from season one had an escalation to it that culminated perfectly with the tornado wrecking shop on the town. It was a visual expression of the heightening tension between all the characters, with their lives being literally... Torn apart, just as their lives had been metaphorically torn apart earlier in the episode. Calling and Exodus, the two-part finale from the second season, are different but really no less powerful. Together, they tell a sad story about a kid on the cusp of making his dreams come true but who makes several wrong decisions and ultimately everything's ruined. The third season finale is a Greek tragedy. Decisions that each character has made endanger themselves and others. Jonathan made a deal with Jarrell and had to pay the price for it. His refusal directly led to his coma and indirectly caused the death of Lindsey Harrison. Lex didn't have to sell Lionel out. Chloe didn't have to wiggle out of her deal with him. But their decision, their decisions to do so, nearly cost them their lives. Commencement's different in that high school graduation is supposed to be a time of endings and new beginnings. Similar to the tornado from season one, the second meteor shower is constantly on the periphery, getting ever closer to destroying the town. But beyond even that, like the tornado from season one, the second meteor shower is a visual expression of the turmoil tearing the main characters apart. Sides have been chosen, and while there may be short-term allies, there are no true friends in this conflict. Clark, Lex, Lionel, Genevieve, and Jason, and for most of the episode, even Lana, all have differing, conflicting agendas. Everybody targets and takes advantage of everybody else as surely as the meteors destroy everything in their path. There are two levels where this uh, calls back to season one. First, as I've said, the second meteor shower is the same kind of visualization of the conflicts dividing the main characters. Also, and more obviously, the second meteor shower is the second meteor shower because we saw the first meteor shower back in the pilot. The first meteor shower was the outside world, hell, the outside galaxy, intruding upon the almost hermetically sealed community of Smallville. So all around, this continues and completes the dreaded season four's tendency to revisit the conflicts, themes, character development, and story arcs from season one from an older and occasionally wiser point of view. It's funny because for as many problems as I have with the dreaded season four, when it revisited issues from the first season, it was incredibly strong and well executed. But moving on, the second meteor shower also visualizes conflict between the characters at the same time that it's the destructive herald of change. Clark's life, his home, and this series will never be the same again. Starting in the fifth season, Smallville would truly become a science-fantasy series. The last vestiges of realism have been swept away. Additionally, the second meteor shower represents consequences. Dare I say judgment? For Clark's disregard for jor instructions, and on that basis, the second meteor shower also serves as the opening salvo and jor redemption to the viewer. As I said before, up to this point, the audience has interpreted Jarell's words and actions through Clark's experience. This is the first time where Jarrell's point of view starts to be expressed and the viewer sees that Clark, if he had just followed Jarrell's instructions, things would have gone so fucking much smoother. Now, for as powerful as all, this then, as all of this was then and now, it still couldn't redeem the dreaded season four as a whole for me. And I think that's probably a, a good little segue into my final notes about the dreaded season four. As I've gone through this dreaded season, one thing that's really been driven home to me is just how much promise this season started off with and just how anemic the season ultimately became. It's one thing to suspect that Christopher Reeve's passing and Margot Kidder's difficulties royally buttfucked the production. It's quite another, though, to realize just how much Goff and Miller ended up having to rely more on Isabel the Witch to create some kind of conflict this year than they probably intended to. I can appreciate that they were between a rock and a hard place for most of the season. Hell, I can even sympathize. But at the end of the day, they made some very bad conceptual decisions that ultimately harmed this dreaded season. They had no control over problems that arose with Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder. And so, obviously, I can't blame Goff and Miller for that stuff. But I do blame them for other things. For example, never putting Clark into any kind of confrontation with the Teagues. Once Jason gets drawn into the stone subplot, beginning in uh, Sacred, Clark basically has no direct contact with them. He never has even one scene with Genevieve. Now, the Teagues are the main villains this season, but Clark's completely isolated from them. And as a result, viewers are disconnected from the threat that the Teague family poses. They're problems for Lex, Lionel, and Lana to deal with. And you know what? As interesting as the Luther family's history with the Teague family might be, first, none of it gets revealed this season, and second, ultimately that's not why audiences watch this show. We want to see Clark vanquish the bad guys, but that never happens here. Jason's killed during the second meteor shower, and Genevieve gets stabbed in the boo by Isabel the Witch. The endings don't involve Clark really in any way. And in the same way, their deaths don't really affect Clark all that much, really, at all. The aftermath of Genevieve's uh, death kind of does, but her death itself, not really. One of the operating principles for The Dreaded Season 4 was to develop a story that heavily included Lana in the mythos. Because of that, you could argue that she supplanted Clark in uh, the narrative in ways that just shouldn't have been allowed. And I think Goff and Miller ultimately agreed with that. It's very telling to me that Lana plays pivotal roles in future seasons, but at the end of the day, the threats are mostly Clark's business to deal with. Sure, there may be minor issues for other characters to work with, but the real meat of the conflicts and the showdowns and whatnot are Clark's mess to clean up. Never again will Lana be thrust into such a prominent role. She's indispensable to the dreaded fourth season, but for all future seasons? I mean, yeah, you'd have to restructure a couple of things, but you could work around her if you really needed to. And those are the occasions when she's not just a damsel who needs rescuing, and sometimes that's all she is. Still, it's not all bad. Goff and Miller felt they had to tell a story in the dreaded fourth season that was fundamentally brighter and happier than what the mighty season three became. And they succeeded. However much uh, the dreaded season four's threats do or don't immediately affect Clark, there are threats in the dreaded season four, and they're nowhere near as dark and gloomy as season three ultimately became. All in all, the dreaded season four had some hard lessons for Goff and Miller. And as I say, not all of them were their fault. In fact, a lot of them weren't. But a lot of them were. And future seasons tell me that they learned their lesson this year. And they took those lessons to heart. There's no sugarcoating it, though. When all said and done, I felt completely fucking betrayed by the dreaded season four. It took a long time to get over it. In fact, I don't think I completely accepted it until just before The Sainted Season 7 premiered. But going through The Dreaded Season 4 now has kind of helped me put a lot of different shit in perspective. The first th- three seasons of Smallville set up a formula that I expected the show to abide by. And the first several episodes of The Dreaded Season 4 seemed maybe lighter in tone than what had come before in The Mighty Season 3, but they were basically of the same quality, I felt. But I felt extremely let down, starting with Spell, and that continued into Bound, the next episode. Sacred was obviously no picnic for me either, and those three episodes are ultimately what soured me on The Dreaded Season 4 in general. Now, I am not excusing the other lackluster episodes... This season, but those three episodes are the main culprits. There are a few lessons here, though. For one thing, the dreaded season four is always going to be my least favorite uh, season of Smallville. Nothing's ever going to change that. Most of the problems that I had with this season when the episodes first aired remain to this day, and at this point, There's really no reason to think that they're ever going to go away. But Spell, Bound, and Sacred are only three episodes in a 22-episode season. The first seven episodes this year and several other standalone shows are a lot of fun and really deliver on the promise that Goff and Miller made to bring a lighter tone and a more fun approach to the show during the dreaded fourth season. Absent goings-on with witches and other bullshit a lot of those other 19 episodes aren't half bad. Second, the dreaded season four gave us Erica Durance as Lois Lane. She was originally supposed to do only four episodes, and that was supposed to be the end of the line, and then she's gone. But Goff, Miller, and the writers brought her back because she added a lot to this series. She could mouth off to Clark, and in some way she she took Chloe's place as a female non-love interest who didn't know Clark's secret. And Durrance has good comic timing to add extra humor to a season where lighter, more fun stories were demanded. That was a decision, bringing Erica Durrance in. That was a decision made to serve this season. But it had big ramifications for the show. And it proves that sometimes you get lucky and find the right actress for the right role, at the right time, and you can use her talents in the right ways. In short, Erica Durance's participation in this season cuts through a lot of bullshit for me. But third, I now wonder that maybe I took it all a little too personally at the time. Yes, spell, bound, and sacred sucked out loud. There's no getting around it. But if those three episodes, the worst of this entire season, were somehow removed, you're left with several great episode, uh, great episodes, and probably a, an equal number of lackluster ones. Those three episodes are primarily what fucked this season up. Right or wrong, I felt incredibly let down by those three shows. To the extent that they soured me on the entire 5th and 6th sixth, uh, sixth seasons when, to be fair, I should have realized that Goff and Miller were back in the game. Hell, it's only been in the past few years that I've really been able to acknowledge just how much the 5th and 6th seasons actually did really well. Fourth, Clark grew as a character during the dreaded 4th season. The first season of Smallville was all about Clark finding his confidence as an an anonymous rescuer. The second season hinged on Clark's fallibility. He may not be as awesome as he thinks he is. The third season showed Clark wrestling with the consequences of his and other characters' decisions. But the dreaded fourth season showed Clark starting to mature, and learn when to stand his ground, and when to sit down, shut up, and do what he's told. He doesn't always make the right decision. And, Alicia Baker, I'm looking pretty much right at you. But Clark's learning and taking notes. By the time credits roll for commencement, Clark knows damn good and well whose fault the second meteor shower is. If he'd just done what Jarrell had told him to do he would have retrieved the stones a long time ago and he could have prepared the entire world for the spaceship that we see at the end of Commencement. The, f- the fact that Clark didn't do that meant a lot of people had to suffer loss, injury, and even death. This also rehabilit- uh, rehabilitates Jarrell's character, uh, just like I was saying before. And, you know, maybe he does come from the tough love school of parenting a little too much, but he ultimately just wanted what was best for Clark and the world. End of the day, Clark is the one who stood in the way of that. Fifth, and I haven't explicitly said so before now, the situation Goff and Miller found themselves in vis-a-vis Christopher Reeve passing away and Margot Kidder having her meltdown also meant relying on more standalone episodes this season. The end result of that means that really only five episodes this season are absolutely mandatory viewing in terms of the season-wide story arc. Namely, Crusade, Transference, Spell, Sacred, and Commencement. You can pretty much skip over every other episode this season and really not miss too much. I mean, yeah, everybody loves Onyx. It's a great character piece, but it has no real value to to the season-wide story this year. At best, Onyx has negligible relevance to the series as a whole, so, yeah, you can basically skip everything apart from Crusade, Transference, Spell, Sacred, and Commencement, and you'd be just fine. Unfortunately, though, two of those five, which is to say Spell and Sacred, are so fucking awful that they probably would have completely derailed my interest in the show if the lead character was anybody other than Superman. As awesome as Crusade and Commencement might be, there's no getting around the fact that a staggering percentage of mandatory episodes this season suck out loud. Think about that. Only five episodes out of 22 are really essential to the dreaded Season 4 story. If those were the only five episodes you saw this uh, from this season, you could move right on into season five, really without missing all that much. As I say all that, though, the other thing to realize is that the dreaded fourth season may well have been my, break- my breaking point for a while there, but it wasn't for other people. Let the record show that the dreaded season four's average rating was 4.4 million people per week. Season five's average was 4.7 million. Now people, I hate the witch stuff from the dreaded season four, and I honestly don't know anybody who enjoys it, but it seems like we're in the minority here since the witch stuff didn't seem to affect too much of Smallville's ratings figures. This is an odd admission to make, too, since You could basically divide Smallville's audience into, I don't know about halves, but you can divide them into two camps. First is obviously Superman's uh, fans, which, nothing more to say there really, but the other group is just as important, and they're teenagers, the uninitiated, the unwashed masses. Superman fans love the season-wide storylines and the nods to the Superman mythos. The civilians prefer the standalone Mutant of the Week format. Goff and Miller had to serve both audiences. Again, for reasons out of their control, they couldn't completely take care of Superman fans this time around. And that could explain why Smallville's numbers were as relatively strong as they were during this dreaded season, considering the competition the show faced at the time. There were more opportunities to tell Freak of the Week stories considering how anemic the season-wide story was uh, eventually forced to become. In fact, relief from the conclusion of the dreaded season four could explain why season 5's ratings took a jump. It's small but noticeable. The people who enjoyed the dreaded fourth season were willing to follow the show to another new night and time slot. Now. Maybe I'm wrong. But if you hate the dreaded season four as much as I do, if you felt as outright uh, as outright fucking betrayed by Isabel the Witch and all that other stupidity, just keep in mind that they both could secretly be blessings. And if they are blessings in disguise, that's one hell of a good disguise, I gotta say. For my part, I don't watch a whole lot of TV. It's just really not my thing. But I gotta tell you, I was very grateful to have Veronica Mars to watch the unpleasantness of Smallville's dreaded fourth season away. Anyway. So that's it for the dreaded season four. And just to think, I survived this entire bitch without developing a drinking problem. Now that isn't to say I haven't had to drink anything as, the, as I've recorded these shows I'm just saying that I consume the alcohol it does not consume me so yeah anyway tune in next time when we can finally start talking about happier things beginning with the season 5 premiere Arrival for now though it's time for a break be right back after these messages
3: Hey, jeff hey mike i'm trailing man it sure is great to be back to fctc after such a long time yes it is and we've been away so long yeah but real life you know what i i just i just can't do this can't do what we have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life i mean we can talk about real life getting in the way which it has but it's it's just not fair So we're not going to joke around and we're going to simply say that for the moment we're back and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like season two of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. (laughs) The show can still be found at the Superman homepage as well as at the Fortress of bailey And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at wwwfortressofbailey www.SupermanHomePage.com, or www.SupermanPodcastNetwork.com. organization operating behind the scenes task force x
0: task force x is an off-the-books
2: government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release serving as expendable agents for impossible missions succeed and i'll shave time off your sentences
1: if we don't
0: you'll be dead any other stupid questions
3: The Suicide Squad, ran by Amanda Waller.
2: I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces.
3: And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics' Suicide Squad and Checkmate, mostly monthly from Head Speaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under Headcasts over at Head Speaks. We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X, check it out, or you'll answer to the wall.
0: Nobody screws the wall!
2: which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trenismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday, and that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is
0: always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available
3: on iTunes. And you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two.
0: If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about
3: Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on
2: iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18.